with gratitude, prayer, and blessings. Live from Jerusalem, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. My guest today is Anat Hoffman. Anat is the executive director of the Israel Religious Action Center, the legal advocacy arm of the Israeli movement for reform and progressive Judaism. She is the director and founding member of Women of the Wall and has served on the Jerusalem City Council. In 2013, Haaretz newspaper named her Person of the Year, and in 2017, the Jerusalem Post ranked her eighth in its list of the 50 most influential Jews worldwide. Anat, it's an honor to have you on the show. It's nice to be here, especially where it's in my office. <laughs> I want to start with the big news coming up. On the 14th of January, the Supreme Court is due to meet and uh, is due to meet with additional judges. What, is that, what does that say to you? Well, usually when the Israeli Supreme Court decides to bolster itself from the traditional three judges, and become five judges or seven judges, it's usually an indication that a very important, maybe precedent is, in, is, is about to happen. In our case, it's nine judges. It's one of the biggest panels in Israel's uh, legal history. And since it has to do with the wall, the feeling is that they're gonna, they're gonna embark on a path towards finding a solution once and for all, the strife that's happening there all the time. When you say finding a solution, this is something that's been 25 years now, hasn't it? Well, the wall has been in Israel's hands 50 years, and the women of the wall has been, have been struggling to make it, so it's a pluralistic area. Uh, this is our 30th year. Wow. And, and this, this looks like it could be the moment. Yeah, and the, the court has already voiced in past 30 years. It's uh, impatience with, with what's happening there. It's already ruled, the court ruled, that the sides have to come to, a negoti to negotiate with each other. They recommended that the government, the women of the wall, the reform, the conservative movement, federations of North America, will get together and actually talk it out and maybe come to a compromise. And we actually did. And we sat for almost four years and we came to the wall agreement. And then the government decided to just renege on that agreement. The court doesn't like things like that. Usually they want people to, re to negotiate, then come to a conclusion, and get out of their hair. We're back in court because the negotiations, even though they yielded a decision of the government of Israel, 15 ministers voted for this agreement, 15 versus 5. Even though it's a decision of the government of Israel, they reneged on it. Don't you wonder if they reneged on an agreement, Jews between Jews, what would happen with a, a different kind of agreement? What, what does it mean that Israel actually decides something and then just throws it out the window? So for people who are just tuning in and who aren't familiar with the history of this issue, could you give us the, the short version of, of how things have come to this? Uh, the short version is that the Jews, about 13 million of them around the planet, have a holy city, it's Jerusalem. Okay. I'm starting very early. Very early start. <laughs> in Jerusalem there is a wall. It's the holiest site for the Jewish people. They believe that it's so holy that some of them actually put notes to God inside the wall. It is uh, a place where all Jews can come free of charge and others to come and pray. Uh, but surprisingly, it's not open to men and women equally. Men have 48 meters and women have only 12, which means the men's side is tw four times bigger than that of the women's side. And it's not just a question of size. Men are allowed to do many more things on their side than women are allowed to do in theirs. You asked me for beginners, so I'm explaining. Uh, yes. uh, men are allowed to put on a uh, head covering called a kippah, and they can put on a prayer shawl called a talit. Uh, they can read from the Torah, from the Holy Scripture. They can sing out loud. They can dance. They can light a menorah, which is uh, a candelabra that you light on Hanukkah. Uh, and they can uh, read a Megillah, which is a, uh, a 
parchment that you read for a holiday called Purim, and they can very well do everything they want. And that's wonderful, and I'm not jealous at all. That's good. But women are curtailed from doing any of that, and it took the struggle of the women of the wall to allow women to be allowed to pray out loud. We were actually detained and arrested by the Jerusalem police for saying a very basic prayer called Shema Yisrael, the prayer that you say uh, three times a day, uh, Jew says that, and we were arrested for saying it because women are supposed to pray only with their lips moving and their voice not heard. That was the stance of the rabbis there. Uh, my problem is not so much with the rabbi who had who is a chauvinistic in how he's treating women. My problem is with the state of Israel that gave him the keys. You shouldn't give a zealot the keys to the holiest site of the Jewish people. There are 13 million of us. We're a lot more than just the ultra-Orthodox, which are the more zealot group in Judaism, and they are about 10% of Israeli Jews. And they are a minority in Israel, a minority all over the world. You shouldn't give the minority the keys if they're going to dictate to everybody their life choices. It should be open to all. And of course I respect the minority's rights, but I can't allow them to dictate to all of us their understanding of where women are and what women should do. So the women of the wall have been, we went to court, we demanded from the Supreme Court police protection because there's violence also against our group. And we were in court all in all 14 years. And we wrote 10,000 pages. Legal pages were written over this issue. You cannot be a law student in Israel and not learn one of those cases called Hoffman versus the State of Israel because they're all cases having to do with the rights of women at the wall. Uh, after a long time in court and after a lot of pressure in Israel and arrests and detentions of women of the wall and quite a bit of violence, the government of Israel capitulated to all this pressure and decided to negotiate an agreement between the women of the wall, the reform and conservative movements, and the government of Israel. And that took almost four years. Uh, we sat and discussed every detail of how we can come to a solution. And the compromise we came to is that there'll be another plaza, right along the plaza that's now, the one that's now is going to continue to be ultra-Orthodox, but the new one will be egalitarian and open and very accessible and visible. And this the is idea, the one at Robinson's Arch? The idea is to put it right at Robinson's Arch, which is an archaeological dig outside the wall area, but next door. So but it's, still, it's still technically part of the Western Wall? Oh, the Western Wall is a very long wall. Okay. It's 468 meters long. There's a lot of wall to go around. But this archaeological site is not a holy site. It's an archaeological dig right next to the wall. And that would be a possible site for the other's plaza. But we insist that there'll be only one entrance. That is, people will come from one entrance and will have to make up their mind which plaza they want to go to. Do they want to go to the very uh, zealot extremist plaza where there is a partition between men and women, a partition that you cannot see at all between the others to the other side. So if, for example, you have a grandchild or a son who's going through a bar mitzvah, it's say the coming of age at age 13, uh, you won't be able to see him if you're a grandma, unless you're willing to climb up a plastic chair. Uh, between five to 10 women break a leg every year, falling off a plastic chair at the wall because grandma falls off the chair. That shouldn't be how she participates in, in her grandson's bar mitzvah. So we want one entrance. We want total visibility. We want our plaza to be dignified and respectful. We want it to be uh, royal even in the way people enter it. Right now, there isn't even a sign where the uh, archaeological site is. You can't find it if you ask people. No, that's not what we want. We want to feel that it's not the back of the bus. We want to feel that it's separate and equal. I, I remember I've been past the Robinson Lodge a few times, and uh, every time I'm stunned because the thing that tour guys keep 
reminding us whenever we go past is, oh no, this is actually part of the Western Wall, this is fine, this is the egalitarian section. You're like, where is everyone? It's just, it's just empty. So what you're part of, what you put on the table was that you want a, a single entrance. And did the government agree to that? Let me just say why it's empty. It's, if you, if you, sh if you shut something away and mm -hmm. you don't have a sign pointing there and there's no real feeling that you're at the wall when you're there, don't be surprised, people don't go there. We want to compete on an equal level. We want people to come to the wall, buy a ticket. There are nine billion visitors who come every year. And we want to compete, but we can't compete if we're told to be, to, 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 if we're given scraps. Right. So did we negotiate with the government? Yes, for four years we negotiated. I'll give you an example. We were thinking about the question, should be we use uh, musical instruments on Shabbat at the new plaza, at the egalitarian plaza. And we came to the conclusion that we won't. Why? Sound carries, and out of respect to our neighbors in the Orthodox plaza, we won't use musical instruments on Shabbat. But on the question, should we allow a partition, like a temporary partition, made out of tissue paper, almost transparent partition, for a modern Orthodox group to come to our egalitarian plaza and just place it for a moment, just for a little bit? The answer is no. If you don't like the, the partition that's in the Orthodox plaza, go fight it out with a rabbi there. Mm -hmm. But our plaza will be free of partitions. You want to pray men and women separate? I won't make you mix but you will not be able to bring a structure of any kind. The only group that will be allowed to have some kind of a surrounding area is Women of the Wall, which is a women's prayer group, and the Orthodox faction within us wants to make sure we're not seen as a mixed group. So Women of the Wall are the only exception to this rule. So this, this was all on the, on the agreement that you spent four years negotiating, and by the end of that, did the government agree to uh, a single entrance? Yes, on the 31st of January, 2016, the government of, the government of Israel voted 15 to 5 for the agreement, to implement the agreement in its entirety. And then they just reneged? Then they didn't do the... See, since we know our government, uh, we had a very strict timetable with very specific steps that have to be taken. The first step was to, um, to appoint Mr. Natan Sharansky, who is the head of the Jewish agency, in charge of the new plaza. Government didn't appoint him. That was the first step. That was an immediate telltale sign for us that they're not doing what they're supposed to. Once he's appointed, he was supposed to hire the architect the architect that will draw up the plans of the new plaza. But having not been appointed, he couldn't hire the architect. Nothing moved. And uh, in June this year, June 2017, the government of Israel decided to freeze for an unknown period the Kotel Agreement. So for four years I had a parking spot at the, park, at the Prime Minister's office and now I don't have it anymore, and the whole effort was for naught. The only thing I can say is that the agreement is a uh, marvelous example of not just the what, that is, what is how we can actually come to a, com to a compromise, it's also, also the how. We actually sat for four years, realizing sense, in a very sensitive way the difficulties of the other side. They realized what our difficulties are, we realized what their difficulties are. And we came to, a, in the end, to a cohesive, solid agreement. I'm very proud of this agreement. So what do you think is going to happen on January 14th at the Supreme Court? Ah, they're not going to come, they're not going to rule, they're going to listen. Nine of them are going to listen, and we're going to hear their comments. Uh, what we're asking for from the court is not to implement the agreement. No, the agreement is gone. We ask that the wall will be redivided. If there's no agreement, no alternative plaza, then fine, let's redivide the wall as we know it into three sections. 
men mixed and women. <laughs> yes. And uh, we want also to sit in the Western World Heritage Foundation, and we also want to decide on financial decisions and content solutions. We want to work with the rabbi right there in his office. Uh, that's a much harsher demand. The agreement seems like a much more reasonable solution. And we're hoping that the court will push the government to do the right thing. And the right thing here is to honor the previous agreement? Or Absolutely. To... Okay. So... Absolutely. The previous agreement is the agreement that... Why did 15 ministers vote for it? Because it works. Because it works. It makes sense. It's actually... This is what Jews should be doing in the Jewish state. They should be dialoguing with each other and finding how to treat the public sphere and use our resources in a way that benefits every one of us. The wall is a unique resource. There's just one. There's only one wall. You know, there's a, a story about Pesheva Singer that he came with his son to the wall. And uh, at the end of the visit, his son says, News Pop, what do you think? And Pesheva Singer said, Like any other veiling wall. <laughs> it's the only one of its kind. That's it. We need to share. It cannot be a place where women come and are spat on and beaten and humiliated. It cannot continue. It's not right that my, my brother and my cousin and my nephew and my twin brother can have a bar mitzvah and there's no bat mitzvah at the wall. There's no opportunity for a girl to approach a Torah scroll and actually pray. That's not right. And Israel should be leading the Jewish world in finding solutions to this. Israel should show how Jewish sovereignty is according to the values that we believe are Jewish values. Tolerance, equality, pluralism. And that's why I think everyone listening, even far away as Australia, should be interested in this because every Jew has actually a say as to what are the Jewish values of the Jewish state. And don't let Israelis silence you or anybody else. You have an opinion about what are Jewish values, and you should be mentioning them even to the Israelis. Let's move on to your work with uh, the IRAC, the Israel Religious Action Center. You and, and Iraq, there are about 30 of you, mainly lawyers, and you sue the government about 60 times a year. And it all started with uh, the very first, the very first uh, case was with Bezek, the phone carrier. Uh, well, the Israel Religious Action Center is, has been around for almost 30 years. This is our 30th year. And where my, my involvement at Iraq started with Bezek. Yeah, I fought the telephone company because um, the telephone company didn't have an itemized bill. And they claimed that they cannot do an itemized bill because if they itemize, it would cost more than the bill. They also said that they are, we are a nation building. We had wars. I kid you not. They actually said we had the Holocaust. And we are nation building, and we cannot waste our time to tell you how many calls you made. And uh, when I refused to pay my phone bill, they did the uh, what later one of the directors of Bezek wrote in his memoirs was the single worst decision of his career. <laughs> they disconnected my phone. So without a phone, and very angry, I started the Bezek Afflicted Clients Association. It was an association where half of us were English speakers. You know why? Why were half of the people willing to fight the telephone company people from America, Australia, Canada, UK? Because those are countries where the law is usually enforced? Uh, it's not a national law in all these countries. But they, you're right. These are people who saw an itemized bill. See, the world is divided into two populations. Those who have seen an itemized bill and those who didn't. Those who didn't can't even imagine an itemized bill. The thought that the company will actually know who you called and reflect to you so you know that the bill is correct, you can't even imagine it if you've never seen it with your own eyes. It, to bring it back to the issues of religion and state, I think if there's one thing I hold against the ultra-Orthodox 
regime in Israel and their total monopoly over all religious services is that so many Israelis have lost the ability to dream. They can't even imagine the possibility of a civil marriage or a civil divorce or a reform conversion and a conservative conversion which is recognized as Jewish. They can't even imagine a burial which is not done, not according to orthodoxy, or kashrut, which is uh, to, to announce that the restaurant is kosher, which is not rabbinic kosher, but a different kind of kashrut. They can't even imagine that. This has a drawback because the product that they do see on the shelf, most Israelis reject. So the result is that in the Jewish state, instead of being the Disneyland of the Jews, the club med for the Jewish soul, we have only one product on the shelf. Many of us hate it. And that is a, causes Israelis to become negative towards Judaism instead of realizing it's not Judaism, which is the problem. It's the religious establishment, the corrupt, monopolistic religious establishment of Israel. Oh, I forgot. Chauvinistic, monopolistic, corrupt religious establishment of Israel. That is a problem. And many Orthodox people feel that too. In fact, they feel it even more than me because they see what a bad rap Judaism is getting. The second thing that comes out of it is an immense ignorance of Israelis. There are Israelis in Australia. Ask them some questions about Judaism. You'll be shocked. Some of them answer at the level of kindergarten. And for a good reason. Their Jewish education ended at kindergarten. They know very little and they dislike the stuff. That's not what the Jewish state was supposed to be like. This was supposed to be a place where you really revel in your Judaism, that you have wonderful experiences, that you come back, that you come here to fill your batteries because it's so wonderful. You've said in the past that the that you're okay with the, the state-appointed rabbi of uh, B'nai Brak being ultra-Orthodox because B'nai Brak is a an ultra-Orthodox community, but for Tel Aviv, a lesbian rabbi would do fine. Is this is this the same monopoly-busting spirit that uh, led you to take on Bezak originally? Uh, I'll just say that I'm against chief rabbis of any kind. I would abolish the whole idea of a chief rabbi, or city rabbi, or a neighborhood rabbi. I think the model that they have in the diaspora is a good model. That is... People who are wonderful rabbis find themselves in congregations that are growing and bigger and lovely. And people who are not such good rabbis get fired. And they actually don't continue. Their congregations disappear. You prefer the clerical free market. I want the free market in in theology, just like I want it in soccer and in culture, in everything else. May the best coach win. And uh, in but if I'm bound to have this, this uh, system of rabbis, I want free competition. I want to see an ad in the paper that says Rabbi Wanted. And I want everyone who is graduated from a, from a known a institution of Jewish learning to compete. The Hebrew Union College and the Jewish Theological Seminary should be considered, as they are all over the world, in Israel, too, they should be considered institutions of Jewish learning. I think it's, you know the word chutzpah? It is unbelievable chutzpah. It's audacity of unbelievable quantity that Israel does not recognize these two institutions that produce reform and conservative rabbis as institutions of Jewish learning. I don't know how you guys put up with it. All your reformed conservative rabbis all over the planet are graduates of these institutions. How does Israel dare not to recognize them? And why are you quiet about it? I'm, I'm, I can't tell you how disgusted and um, frustrated I am over this. Because as a city councilor here in town, I visited some of the institutions that ordain Orthodox rabbis. Man, some of these don't exist. Some of them are P.O. boxes. Some of them don't qualify to be a kindergarten, let alone a yeshiva. So how is it possible that the ordination of an Orthodox rabbi, which in Israel has no, it's not anchored in law. We don't know what he has to study. He has to pass a test. 
I want to pass the test just like them. I want to train my students to, our students here at the Hebrew Union College and Jewish Theological Seminary to compete. And if she is a lesbian and she wants to compete, I think she should be considered. There, uh, the work that you do in uh, IRAC is is varied, and amongst other things, you have a new racism crisis center. Yeah, could you tell us a bit about uh, how that got started and what services you provide here? Well, uh, Israel is reluctantly facing, beginning to face the issue of racism in Israel. Sadly, the Jews who are the quintessential victims of racism in their own state are not immune. Racism is a natural thing. We love our group, and as loving our group, we, we don't like the other group. Be it that the other group is Ethiopian Jews, or Mizrahi Jews, or Russian Jews, but the most serious victims of racism in Israel are our own Israeli citizens who are Arab, the Muslim Israelis. They are, a, they are suffering almost on a daily basis of discrimination in housing and employment and humiliation. And of course, because of the security issues, they're the first ones to be frisked and checked and taken off the bus. And... Um, just speaking Arabic is becoming a problem for some of them. What's the situation like in the uh, restaurants at night? So there are three organizations, self-proclaimed militias, if you want, uh, mainly employing, uh, recruiting teenagers under the, uh, under the responsibility age when they're minors, and there, there's a lot of incitement. They get a t-shirt that says Lehava. Lehava is an acronym for uh, to stop assimilation in the Holy Land. And they are released in the center of Jerusalem to go and badger people in, in restaurants, in different uh, entertainment places, to find and seek the Arabs, to beat them up, and to tell them that Jerusalem's heart has to be clean of Arabs. The word clean of Arabs. There are uh, many cameras, uh, security cameras, all over Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem police does not seem to be able to find any of the culprits. We have some victims here that uh, came to our center, a broken tooth, a broken nose, and nobody saw what happened. One of these uh, militias said that one, an Arab walked by and decided to beat 10 of them, and they had to protect themselves. You tell me, what reasonable human being actually would go and try to attack 10 militia people wearing black and yellow shirts that say, Arabs don't even think about a Jewish woman. A lot of the incitement against the Arabs is that they are after our women, our daughters and our mothers. Technically and statistically, it isn't true. But it is very, it's the path of racists from time immemorial to claim that the minority is hypersexual and is preying on our women. This is true in many instances. The one I'm thinking of is the Jews in Europe in the 20s were considered lusty and preying on European women. So um, it's one of the more darker sides of our work. We feel we must do that work because uh, this violence has numbers. It's really, ha it's really happening. Since in the last 10 years, we have count counted 44 places of worship, mosques and churches that were desecrated. Muhammad, a pig, Jesus, a monkey, attempts to arson these places. People were injured in the burning of churches and mosques. And what's uh, very disturbing is that in all these 44 instances, the culprits were found only in one instance. Only in the Church of Loaves and Fishes, they found activists of Lehava, that organization, as the ones who burnt the church. Burnt an old church that a, their claim, their, their main function is to baptize handicapped children. 
And it, it shook the Christian world. Uh, there were 12, what else, monks in the church. One of them is injured, was injured, is, was spent a year in the hospital. Only in one case they found who did it, and in all the others they didn't. I'm talking about Israel. I'm talking about Israel that knows how many centrifuges are turning in the middle of Tehran right now. And we don't know who's burning churches and mosques in Israel. I think that the Jerusalem, the Israel police needs a serious kick in the ass. And I think Israelis have to uh, understand that the um, hottest place in hell is kept for those who are silent and neutral keep their neutrality at a time of a moral crisis. There is a moral crisis in Israel. I'm telling you that minority groups suffer from violence and discrimination openly, and it's time to put an end to it. So your new crisis center is, is geared towards the legal side of things or more towards the uh, restitution and care side of things? They're the same. Okay. It's a good lawyer that gets you restitution. But let me tell you two good news. One good news is that uh, Israel has phenomenal laws rega regarding racism. Smart people in the 50s and 60s, after the Shoah, put them in place. The problem is bureaucracy. It is hard if you are not an excellent Hebrew speaker with some legal background to fill the forms on time and get restitution. But we're, that's exactly where we come in. We're going to help our callers to find this, get their day in court and use our excellent laws. The second thing is, one of the ways people keep silent and apathetic about this issue is that the numbers are not out. The Arab citizens of Israel know about this issue, but they are not so mixed with the Jewish population to tell us about it. Now that we have a stream of complaints, we'll be able, in a year, to have a report our report will show us the different patterns of racism. Where does it happen? I can tell you now that it's just open now for two months. We already see that our theory in the beginning, no, our hypothesis was not right. I thought that most of the uh, complaints would be on housing, discrimination on housing. That is, if you called, I have a room. But if Muhammad calls, I say, there's no room. Uh, or employment. Oh, we will hire you, we will not hire him. Um, and it's not. Most of the complaints have to do with police, army, and security guards. It turns out that uh, this, this is where the altercations are, particularly in public transportation. This is something we wouldn't have been able to know unless, unless we started getting these complaints. We also found a category of complaints that we don't have a name for it yet, and that is when people of authority say racist things. They're not, this is not violence, just, I'll give you an example, just came this week, a uh, Ethiopian Jew was driving with his wife, his wife is Ashkenazi, white, and uh, a policeman stopped them and wanted to uh, put him through the breathalyzer test. So far, so good. While her husband, her husband, is going through the breathalyzer test, the policeman says, is he harassing you? She says, no, he's my husband. What are you doing with a man like that? Where do you put this question? She found it extremely insulting that he, the policeman feels free to ask her why she married a Jew with a different pigmentation of the skin. Uh, She's not alone. There are a few, there's a cluster of such comments that we don't yet have a name for that. I'm open to suggestions. But it is racism. It's a relative of racism. And if maybe your listeners have an idea, I'd love to hear. How do you call such a comment? Something else that you've mentioned uh, wanting to take suggestions for is how to solve the issue of uh, ultra-Orthodox education without turning to segregation. Now, segregation on buses is something that you've fought here before and you've fought successfully. What's the situation with universities right now? What's the difficulty? So, uh, uh, this week, the court dealt, the Supreme Court had a hearing about this question. Uh, and the jury is still out, so to speak. Yeah, we made a case at court saying that um, 
It is not right to give a person a BA if he has never learned from a woman, never learned next to a woman, never been with a woman in the cafeteria. He is not fit to be a graduate of, a, of an academic institution in this world if he has not learned from someone from the other sex. On the other hand, we are told that this is one of the biggest challenges to Israel's economy, that right now uh, 62,000 young ultra-Orthodox men are unemployable. They have no profession other than Talmud and knowing how to be a kashrut inspector or a uh, ritual bath employee or a rabbi. We don't need that many. We need, uh, they, need, they don't know how to write their name in English or multiply. They are missing core curriculum. They have gone to a full Israeli education sponsored by our government without learning math, science, English, civics, life skills. They really are unemployable adults. Uh, this is a big challenge. What do we do with them? They need to study in academia. So I, I don't know where I stand. On the one hand, I don't want to contaminate our academic institutions and make the cafeteria segregated and the library segregated and hire only male teachers that can teach both men and women. Women professors can only teach women. They cannot teach these men. And on the other, I must teach these young unemployable adults some life skills. So the solution that we're looking at is maybe opening off-campus study centers for these ultra-Orthodox men. So the university gives the, gives the services, but it's not the campus. It's off-campus. Maybe that would be the solution. The radical solution would be that ultra-Orthodox men in Israel, like their counterparts in ultra-Orthodox communities all over the planet, will actually study in school and study secular, secular uh, professions just like just like Maimonides did and all these people in the Talmud who were all listed in the yellow pages of their time because they all had professions. Maybe that would be the radical solution, but this one requires some boldness. And if, if nothing else, your listener has probably figured out by now that our government, our rabbis, and our political leaders lack courage. And they're selling out our serious, the values that Israel has been founded on for very petty political considerations. You've uh, said in your, in your interview with the Jerusalem Post when you were named one of the 50 most influential Jews uh, worldwide last year, which, by the way, I'm a result of, <laughs> you said, uh, and I quote here, it says some 36 times in the Bible, do not oppress the stranger, because you were a stranger in the land of Egypt. It's saying to do right by the minority. That's how a community is measured, by how we deal with the other, with the orphan and the widow. This is our great gift to the world. But have we developed a culture in Israel where you can ignore a minority, a widow, and an orphan over my dead body? They're bold words. Well, unoriginal, if I may uh, say, that completely unoriginal. Open any one of our prophets, and that's what they say. They say we stink, they say that we are not abiding by this rule, and they keep reminding us that this is how we measure society, by how we deal with the orphan, the widow, and the other. So I'm not being original, and I gain a lot of uh, hope and encouragement from the fact that these prophets, who are not listened to at their time, they're in the Bible, that's pretty good. Shows that we have the sense at least to remember that this is the right thing to do. You know, in Hebrew, the word for conscience and the word for compass are almost the same. Matzpun and matzpen. I'm gearing myself to a very old compass here. And the, you know, if, if God or, if it's written 36 times in our Bible that you have to do right by a minority, it shows you two things. One, that it's completely a, a counterintuitive. If you have to say something 36 times, obviously it's not clear. Uh, you know, as a mother, I find myself saying 36 times, put your laundry in the hamper. Obviously, this is not a, something very reasonable for my kids to figure out. So 36 times, many more times than to observe Shabbat, many more times than to observe family purity, 
many more times to, from, to observe kashrut, it says to do right by a minority. So number one, it's counterintuitive. And number two, very important. It's very, very important that the Jews actually remember who we are, what our story is. And our story is the people, the slaves that were freed from slavery and that we cannot enslave others. In the context of these words and in the context of, of this prophetic focus, what is your vision of a better Jerusalem? Well, in my Jerusalem, I would uh, like to cut racism at the bud by having uh, an Arab Jewish orchestra for kids. That is, kids will play music together who are Arabs and Jewish together. We don't have that. I'd have a food fair where we would eat their food that Israelis will agree better than ours and have a food fair and share food. I would like to have parades and museums open for both peoples. You, in order to fight racism, all you need to do is just see that the other person is a person. Uh, I looked into Arabs, Arabs' eyes and I saw a human being. Um, I think the people who are incited against Arabs don't see a human being. They're not told that they're, that's the nature of racism, to make sweeping, sweeping statements over a whole people because of the acts of one person. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm trying not to be a racist, and I'd like to in, inspire in this Jerusalem a place that is fighting racism. So these two examples I gave you are just little ways where we need to mix, each, mix with each other. And if we're going to be living in the Middle East, our kids and we have to speak Arabic. Arabic is a beautiful language, one of the richest languages in the world. It's a sister to Hebrew. It's very easy for Israelis to pick it up. We need to speak Arabic so we can talk to the neighbors in a, in a metaphoric sense and in a real sense. Our kids have to know the holidays of their neighbors. If Arabs came to visit Yad Vashem, they'll know a little more about us. And if our kids visited mosques, hopefully they will not be burning them. And altogether, we need to start a... I, we just got a complaint this week that a tour guide... Yeah, you heard it. That the tour guide was not allowed to bring a, uh, a Quran to the wall area because it was seen as an incitement, uh, an inciting uh, book. To, to just take a Quran... To the Western yeah, world. she came to the, with the Quran because she took a group up to the Temple Mount and she wanted to read them some surahs from the Quran, some passages from the Quran, and she also brought them down to, it's a group of non-Jews that went to see the, up, up to the, maybe yes, maybe Jews too, I don't know, but they went to hear a bit of the Quran up at the Temple Mount and she also had the Bible to read something at the Western Wall. She was not allowed by the authorities to bring the Quran into the wall area because it is an incitement material. You need to be a, un, un, completely ignorant of what's written in the Quran if you don't allow that book in. The Quran and the New Testament and the Bible should live together on the same shelf. And in this town, it's what this town is a very poor city. Jerusalem is the largest city in Israel and the poorest city in Israel. Our own, we don't have natural resources like gold and oil. What do we have here? Only one industry, tourism. Tourism thrives on mutual respect and quiet. Tourists don't come to visit a place that is in turmoil. So in order for this town to actually have livelihood, every Israel, every Jerusalemite kid must feel very comfortable with the New Testament, the Quran, and the Bible. They get along fine on my shelf. They don't bite each other. They should also be allowed in other places. You were speaking recently to a, a group of U.S. Jews, and you were giving them counsel on what to do if they're dismissed for, uh, in their activist activities by Israeli Jews. And one of the things you said that uh, American Jews are often told by Israelis is, oh, you don't understand, this is an issue of life and death. And you started your rhetorical response to this by saying to the, to the Jews of America, you are also dealing with life and death. Could you expand on what you mean by that? Um, 
first, the issue of security, supposedly that the Arab enemy is the biggest killer of Israelis, that isn't true. Uh, I say that not just to American Jews, but Jews all over the diaspora. The biggest killer in Israel is not the Arab from across the border, but our own Israeli driver. 23,000 Samad Israelis were killed in all the wars and terrorist acts together combined. That's a lot. And I'm sorry for every one of them, but it's 23,000. It's almost 32,000 killed on the roads by Israeli drivers. We are, and we don't even have an, a, a ministry for road safety. And road safety altogether is not really one of the major concerns of this government. About a quarter of the Israeli budget goes for security versus the Arabs, and very little goes to help us have better roads and more uh, careful drivers and a stronger police force on the roads. So, number one, the security issue. If you want to save Israeli lives, uh, teach us how to drive carefully. And if you're worried about visiting Israel because of terror, don't worry about the terrorists. Worry about crossing King David Street. The second thing is that a, the, the idea of Israel was not just to give the Jewish body a safe place. It was also a place where we, the Jewish soul will be able to thrive, to give our kids a purpose and a sense that they're building something wonderful and unique. A... If we become a racist, chauvinistic country that bows down to the most zealots of, of Jews, uh, we will lose our kids. There will be kids that would leave Israel, many of them, because they will not want to fight for a country which is racist and chauvinistic. So in order to keep the soul of Israel going and to have our children love it, it has to be living up to the values of the Declaration of Independence. And our declaration says, full and complete social and political rights to all its inhabitants without any discrimination of sex or gender, uh, sex or creed or religion. No discrimination. This is what we have to live by. If you had a message for young Jews uh, in Israel and abroad in the diaspora, what would that message be? Uh, my message would be, don't be apathetic. Zionism is not a uh, spectator sport. This is a, the most important Jewish project of our lifetime. Jews are invited to take part in building the only sovereign Jewish state on the planet. If there was another sovereign Jewish state on the planet, uh, maybe I'd take the first plane going there. But this is the only one. If we fail in this one, we will not be given another chance. We've had thousands of years of traveling all over the world and not uh, faring very well. Here is our big chance to live up our live according to the, the best values we brought the world. We are a smart, ancient people. We have to solve our internal problems and really we could be a light onto the nations. You know, for many years I thought, let the nations get their own electrician. But maybe it is our role. To, to really show how we could resurrect our country as we have resurrected our language, the beautiful Hebrew language that we speak. And uh, I think it's, Israel is way too important to be left just to the Israelis. I think that uh, Jews all over the world have to take part. I welcome your input. This is very, it gives me hope, it encourages me. And I'm very sad, in fact, it's tragic. I cry over this that a young Jewish person who believes in liberal values is turned off to Israel altogether because of our policies. That is the worst thing. I, I, I admire their, these values. I don't want this person to check these values at, at the door when he goes into Israel. I want these values playing out in Israel. It's hard. Okay, it's hard. It's a hard life to be a Jew. It's hard to be a liberal. It's hard to have a tolerance for, for complexity and, and, and um, ambiguity. But that's the essence of intelligence. You want to be happy? Eh, be, you know, you can, anyone who wants to be happy should become ultra-Orthodox. I, I, I look at that community and I see that uh, there's a very high self-reporting of high satisfaction there.
But if you want to be a discerning participant in the world, not ask the rabbi how to feel, but ask your own conscience, your own heart, take charge of who you are and make a difference in the world, Israel is where it plays out. This is where one person can make a huge difference. And I encourage you to not, not abandon this idea just because our current policies are so screwed up. This is a, an opportunity. It's an opportunity for every caring Jewish person to have a life of meaning. Maybe that's where I differ from Americans that believe in the pursuit of happiness. I'm in the business of pursuit of meaning. I think meaning will give your life happiness. So I strongly recommend, especially those liberal among us who are looking at Israel, pulling their hair and thinking, have they gone crazy over there? No, we have gone wrong because not enough of us are saying the right thing. And we need your help. So help us. Not Hoffman, it's a privilege to speak with you today. Thank you. to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.